on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of the Legal Economic Nexus podcast and our last episode for Season 2. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Klammer. Sarah, how are you today? Doing great. So we're actually on site today in New York City. We're at the Association for the Promotion of Law and Political Economy Conference. If you're enjoying the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, please rate us on your favorite podcast app and please share our feed with your friends and colleagues. We're coming to you from John Jay College in New York City. We're attending the Association for the Promotion of Political Economy and Law. Today we're talking in person, our first in-person interview to Mark Paul from Rutgers University. Mark is an assistant professor at the Rutgers Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy. He has a PhD in economics from UMass Amherst. His 2023 book, which is coming out very soon, and which you should definitely read, The End of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise for the University of Chicago Press. We'll be talking about his book and the talk he just gave here at the conference, we are all attending here in New York City. This book is a really a joy to read with lots of penetrating insights. Mark, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Thanks for being here with us. And again, this is our first in-person interview, so it's kind of exciting since we started this during the pandemic. Our first question is really I, just to start to talk about the economic rights. You know, we're all familiar with political rights, things like freedom of speech and so forth. But as you write in your book about uh, FDR and others thinking about these economic rights, can we talk about what those are and why those are important? Sure. So, you know, as you highlighted, you know, Americans are familiar with their political rights, their civil rights. And, and today, you know, it's been in the news constantly and for, for a troubling reason is reproductive rights, which are increasingly coming under attack. Mm-hmm. The idea of economic rights uh, is something that we don't talk about often, but actually it has deep roots in the American tradition. Uh, And in fact, in 1944, uh, President Roosevelt argued that we need a second, an economic bill of rights as the culmination of the New Deal, really. His effort here was to ensure that all Americans have their basic needs met. And, you know, the idea was that in order to fully participate in a democratic society, you couldn't be worrying about where you're going to sleep that night or how you're going to get food on the table for your kids. And so Roosevelt put forth, you know, this idea that we should provide everybody with the basic needs, the right to a job. You know, if if the private sector wouldn't provide enough well-paying employment to each and every American, the government would step in and do this. Now, people are familiar with some of the programs that Roosevelt actually implemented to to address this, like the Civilian Conservation Corps or Work Progress Administration. I mean, I myself am a national park buff, and I've gotten to hike on many trails that uh, were, were created from the CCC near a century ago, yet here we are today still benefiting from them. He put forth other rights to complement those two, things like the right to health care, the right to social insurance, the right to an education, and more as a way to ensure that no person is left behind. And here the basic realization is that we're a wealthy society and that nobody should go without. 
All right, yeah, thank you. Sarah, do you want to take the next one? Sure. On pages 50 to 55, you talk about Reagan's defense of private property rights and why previously Keynes opposed the idea of property rights being natural or private. In our own recent work, we emphasize heavily the interdependent nature of society and any kind of legal structure. Can you discuss how property rights are in fact social in nature and why that might matter? Yeah, so, you know, property rights are socially determined. Uh, there's nothing natural uh, written into law that says that I get to own this laptop that I have here in front of me, mm -hmm. right? We decide as a society that we will create some set of laws to guide and rule our society and, and govern our interactions. And so, you know, the whole creation of private property is just that, a creation of, you know, a community to decide that they want to implement these rights. But the degree to which property rights implement are implemented here today, both across states in the United States or across countries, uh, varies vastly. Uh, so housing is just one example. In the US, we have fairly extreme property rights that allow landlords to kick tenants out fairly easily. If you go to Europe, you know, property rights are distributed much differently, for instance, in places like Vienna, Austria, between landlords and tenants, where actually the person who's been occupying and living in that house as a home has a lot more rights than they would if they lived here in the United States. And that's not due to some natural difference between Austria and the United States, it's due to difference in the legal structures that, that we create in, in how we divide and distribute property rights as such. And, and so the idea that private property rights are, are natural, I think, is a, a fictitious idea that's really damaging to our way of kind of reconceiving what a different society could and should look like. I just want to follow up a little bit. You know, that's a part of Keynes that seems to have been missed. Would you agree that people think about Keynes in terms of macro and deficit spending? But this seems like a thing he talked about that wasn't really captured. Certainly economists don't seem to talk about it. Is that, would you say that's correct? I totally agree. I mean, I, for, for the listeners, I'd encourage you to go read my dear friend Zach Carter's uh, recent biography of Keynes. Um, which I think just really brilliantly highlights what a sophisticated intellectual Keynes was. I mean, he's, he's really the, the great economist of the 21st century that brought together philosophy, law, economics, and politics all, all into kind of one unifying theory of fr and framework. And the, the title of that book, by the way, is The Price of Peace. Right. Thank you. On page 60, a few pages later, and again 65, um, that despite their reputations, Hayek and Friedman both actually did, at least earlier in their careers, favor certain forms of state intervention. And we're curious, like, what were they favoring and maybe what was the basis for that? And maybe why do you think they went away from that later in their careers? Yeah. So to, to understand this, I think we need to think about what Friedman and Hayek were responding to. And they were responding to what they viewed as kind of creeping socialism. I mean, right, uh, Hayek specifically uh, writes of the road to serfdom. Um, and both of them were, were quite concerned of the kind of the rise of the left and the downfall of, of classic liberalism. But they were also responding to the failure of laissez-faire. You know, people had rightfully lost faith in this. I mean, President Hoover, for instance, during the heyday of the, the Great Depression, continued to preach a laissez-faire doctrine, yet the American public, uh, you know, wasn't buying it at all. I mean, all you had to do was look at the, the shanty towns that were dotting the nation to realize that this economic theory was totally failing the masses. 
And so Friedman and Hayek were both part of a political project. And it should be noted that uh, it was when Friedman went to his first meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society that he actually became politicized. Mm. He, he wrote in his autobiography that after that first meeting is when he decided to devote his life not just to economics, but to political change. And that was a meeting, by the way, organized by, by Hayek. And, you know, it was at this point that they were trying to come up with a doctrine, which they entitled neoliberalism, to reinvent liberalism, but also to under, you know, to address the fact that laissez-faireism wasn't delivering for the masses. And so because of this, they wanted to, in, in Friedman's word, words, kind of use government to alleviate the acute misery of the people. And what did that actually mean in reality? Well, both Friedman advocated for things like a basic income and that government should address externalities and failing markets and actually promote competitive markets. He, he's kind of railed against uh, monopolies at the time. Things that you could never imagine the later Friedman advocating for in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Hayek, for his part, I mean, was like decisively collectivist in some areas. I mean, he advocated for a universal health insurance program, said that you know private entities had no right in this marketplace. So I think that there's a lot of kind of really complex ideas in both of their earlier writings. Um, in particular, you know, the way I think of this is, is Hayek is neoliberalism's father, so to say, and Milton Friedman is its favorite son. And, and, and Friedman really uh, became radicalized in his career, I think precisely because he understood that to win political power, you couldn't have a nuanced message. You needed kind of this blunt force, kind of simple yet beautiful picture of how the world works. And that's why he put all faith in markets. I don't know if he actually believed it. You know, I wish I could get inside of his head. It's hard to say. Uh, but but he never reconciled his later writings with his earlier writings, uh, which I think is you know, kind of an interesting point in, in his life. Has anybody tried to do that? You know, not that I'm aware of, but I'm not a, a scholar of history of thought, so I'm, I'm not 100% sure. But it's a great question. It would make for a great dissertation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. So you talk a lot about scarcity in your book, um, particularly this idea that scarcity is a policy choice. Um, can you expand on that a little bit for our listeners? Sure. So, you know, in economics, we're taught that the very study of economics is the study of scarcity. It's, you know, it's all about trade-offs. And, you know, I think we just need to take a step back and ask some fundamental questions. Do we have enough homes to ensure that every single person in America has a house? And, and the actual answer is yes. Now, don't get me wrong, we should build more housing. We do have a housing shortage in some areas of the country, I think places like New York City, San Francisco, and others. But if we have plenty of housing units for families in America, it's not a question of enough housing units, it's a question of how we distribute our goods and services. Can we produce enough food in a given year? Again, the answer is a resounding yes, but it's about you know, why do we have hunger, hungry people then? It's about how we distribute that food, who has the right and the claim to food, to housing, to jobs and the like. And if you look back at historic documents, and, and, and this kind of is, I think, frustrating more than anything, you have writings going all the way back to the early 1940s when federal officials said, you know, the problem of poverty is not one of, a, you know, insufficient goods and resources. It's purely one of distribution. So here we are, you know, 80 some odd years later, you know, kind of still saying, well, growth will will solve every woe we have. Yet, you know, we know that it remains a problem of of distribution, not of scarcity. Now, you know, I don't mean to say 
scarcity is a complete non-issue in some instances. You know, do we have enough uh, elementary school teachers today? No. But is that because we don't have enough people that wouldn't like to become teachers? Or is it because we make it too hard to become a teacher and don't provide people a, a viable pathway to be a teacher? You know, we charge people sixty, seventy thousand dollars just in for their graduate studies. You know, after they have a hundred thousand dollars in debt from their undergraduate studies, to then go make sixty thousand dollars a year, and you know, that's not a great pathway for a lot of people. So, you know, scarcity does exist in some areas of the economy, like like enough teachers, but here too, you know, I, these issues are largely policy choices rather than an actual insufficient amount of raw material that we can turn into the goods and services that we all need and, and desire. Do you think it's a fair statement to say that in some sense, and again, there probably is real scarcity in some cases, but that scarcity is often used more as an ideological tool to force us to believe there's trade-offs that maybe there aren't necessarily the trade-offs that we imagine there are. Do you, would you think that's true? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, and just to your first point, you know, I don't mean to, to say that scarcity doesn't exist anywhere. So one example, you know, I think a lot about the climate crisis and, you know, raw materials for batteries are scarce to a degree and, and transitioning in a way where everybody's driving an electric Hummer and truck is very different than transitioning in a way where we have mass carbon-free, fare-free public transit coupled, you know, coupled with people driving more modest electric vehicles. And, and so I think we do want to be conscious of material scarcity in terms of our, our actual environmental and ecological footprint on the planet. But yes, I think in general, most of the time, these arguments are, are made to do two things. One is to deny people of basic goods and rationalize it. But two is also to divide and conquer us. So means testing is the main, the main reason we have means tested programs. Things like you know just the FAFSA that help us decide who gets aid to go to college is because of this idea of scarcity. And you know, I think that it, it ends up kind of damning us all collectively in turn. As the saying goes, programs for the poor make poor programs. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good. It's a good point. I think it's something we we like to explore these nuances because I think economists are known for certain terms and ideas that maybe get misused. You discuss a, lot, a bit about basic income, um, which has been an important notion for many heterodox economists, and and going way back, as as you point out in your book, actually. Can you further discuss some of the details about these arguments that how basic income works, the phasing and the timing, and what is its role in the whole economic rights context? Because I know you think the whole rights have to come together as a package. So what is the role of that, for example, in this package? The idea of basic income can actually be dated back to Thomas Paine, one of the more radical founders, where he advocated for, for this idea that everybody should share in a bounty of the wealth of the nation as their birthright. And he wrote this in, in one of his books, Agrarian Justice. And it's, you know, really gets at the fact that each and every one of us contribute collectively to society. And in turn, each of us should benefit just as being a member of society. It's not about charity. It's not about welfare. It's about our rights as members of this collective community. And so in the book, one of the economic rights that I discuss is this idea of a basic income. And, and 
I should say that you know earlier in my career I was not a, the biggest fan of basic income. I uh, started advocating for programs such as a job guarantee through my research and in time and through researching this book I really came around to the idea that a basic income does play an important role in the collective rights um, when we look at them you know as a comprehensive package. And the idea of basic income, as I argue for it, is essentially a form of a negative income tax where you know, we would place a floor in the market to ensure that all people are above the poverty line through a fully refundable you know, negative income tax program that ensures that nobody is without some market income to purchase the goods and services that they require. And, you know, look, we still live in a market economy and we're going to live in a market economy for the foreseeable future. So, you know, my vision of freedom is not the government sends you a box of surplus fruits and vegetables. It's that the government ensures you have enough money in your pocket to go to the grocery store and buy whatever food you want. I mean, here we have the Republicans trying to ban, you know, certain types of cheese and milk from WIC recipients, you know, and trying to do this in the name of freedom. I mean, I think the idea is that we need to make sure that people have, need to have money in their pocket to make choices. But we also can't just think about a basic income in isolation. If you give people a basic income in the realm of, of $12,000 a year, which is what people like Andrew Yang were advocating for when he was running for president, you know, that would be eaten up in a second by simply paying for an individual's health insurance. Or that wouldn't even cover rent in you know, basically any county across the United States. And so people wouldn't be left over with any money to get other essentials. And so if you actually want to kind of knit a true, what I like to call well-being state, you need to ensure that people have homes, that people have jobs, that people have health care, but then that they also have income to then go buy the goods and services that they require that I think should be provided on the market. Things like food, like clothing and other necessities, you know, computers, uh, cell phones and the like. And so, you know, that's the basic idea of a basic income. But the reason I structure it as a negative income tax is simply saying, hey, we have a progressive tax code in this country, or at least we used to. Unfortunately, we don't have much of one anymore with the richest paying less than the middle uh, class today. However, it's kind of arbitrary that we stop that progressivity at, at kind of the zero income limit. In fact, we can extend it into the negative territory to ensure that everybody has cash in their pocket. All right, thank you. So housing's also part of the bundle of rights that you're talking about. Can you talk about your fight against traditional economic arguments against rent control and also why so many economists are convinced of the standard story of rent control? So let me bring it back to Milton Friedman here, actually. His first political pamphlet he ever wrote was with uh, fellow Chicago economist George Stigler entitled uh, Rents Were Ceiling, where they just railed against rent control. Um, and every every student who ever took a class uh, in econ, you know, took their econ 101 knows rent control is a bad policy, just like minimum wage is a bad policy. It creates that dreaded triangle that we call deadweight loss. Now you draw your supply curve, you draw your demand curve, you implement a rent control, and uh, we are no longer at the best of all possible worlds. It's a really simple model, but the problem is that model tells us nothing about the real world. Um, and Friedman you know, has this really radical line that said, if only we had a truly free market in housing, apartments would be available for rent at every price level tenants desired. Well, 
I think you just have to go try to apply for an apartment in basically any city in the world. Um, and it's not just, you know, high cost cities like San Francisco, but, you know, let's look at Detroit, where half of renters are cost burdened, despite the fact that it's a low, fairly low rent cost city compared to, to other regions. To see that our rental markets don't work. And it's because our traditional models don't account for power. And just like in the minimum wage debates where, you know, the work of influential economists like Aaron Dubay and others have really revolutionized how economists think about this through, um, you know, empirical examples demonstrating that minimum wages don't lead to massive job loss and don't generate the deadweight loss that our simple models told us they might. We're starting to do the same thing here in rent control, realizing that implementing rent control doesn't lead to a complete gap in supply of housing. It doesn't lead to the end of all new construction. It doesn't lead to huge deadweight loss. And in fact, what rent control does, according to the, all the empirical studies basically to date, is stabilize rents and stabilize neighborhoods, basically allowing for economic development in an area instead of gentrification. Now, I want to be clear, rent control is not a silver bullet, just as minimum wage is not a silver bullet to fix our, our labor market. Now, we need complementary policies to expand low-income and affordable housing options. We just simply don't have enough you know, affordable housing options that are, on, that are available with or without rent control. And so that's why in the book I argued not only for rent control, but also for an expansion of what I call social housing, which differs from, from public housing that we are so used to. Here in the U.S., we have a fairly low-quality public housing sector that is intentionally built to be low-quality because the government bid it out to the lowest bidder with low standards, and then in turn embarked on a, a program of economic and racial segregation by only putting low-income people in that housing. Um, I think we can and should learn from our international neighbors like Vienna, Austria, rated 10 years in a row the most livable city in the world, where more than 70% of residents live in public housing. And it's because it's mixed-use public housing that ensures that you know your doctors and lawyers are living next to your minimum wage workers in the same buildings and using the same amenities. And this is precisely how they create high quality housing options for all people. Fascinating. On page 230, um, we were, uh, and this is very timely probably, the Republican Party's refusal to raise the debt limit is a political, not an economic decision. Many listeners of this podcast probably would agree with that statement. But do we have any concerns, even if it is political, that if there is a default, you know, what kind of consequences that could have for the country? Is that something we should be concerned about as we go into this summer? Yeah, I'm definitely concerned about a default. Now, let's keep in mind, a default is a choice, but it's not only a choice that Republicans are forcing, it's a choice that if it were to occur, Democrats are accepting. There are legal pathways out of the snafu that Democrats find themselves in right now. I mean, you know, first we should recall that Congress has already approved all of the spending, right? Um, it's just that we have kind of a radical right faction that is playing with the creditworthiness of the government and in fact playing with the global financial system by bringing us to the, to the brink of default. But if President Biden wanted to, they have options. They could mint the coin. Is it a gimmick? You bet. 
But is the debt ceiling a gimmick in the first place? 100%. So I would say I'm willing to trade gimmick for gimmick. And I think that that's a reasonable pathway out of this utterly silly situation we find ourselves in, particularly if it would help ensure that we settle financial markets uh, rather than having to continue to, to subsidize private capital and calm their nerves. So if the federal government doesn't need to balance the budget, and in fact running a deficit is a positive force for change in the economy, what do you think uh, tax policy considerations should be? Yeah, so I mean, I do think tax policy is important to help finance some programs. So uh, Medicare for All is a good example. Um, Right now we all pay taxes to finance health insurance. I mean, I think it's fair to think about our our contributions to our health care as a tax. And I also think it's fair to think about our the fact that our wages are substantially lower than our net compensation played by paid by employers because our employers are picking up for many people a substantial portion of the health care uh, expenditures that we that we you know end up receiving through employer provided health insurance. So if we were to implement Medicare for all, just to give you one example, I you know I think it's clear that taxes on most Americans would indeed go up. But the question isn't just does our tax bill go up or down. That doesn't give me a decent picture of how I'm doing economically as an individual. If I have more money in my pocket and better quality care while paying higher taxes and getting Medicare for all, I think I'm better off. So what do I mean by that? It's true that all of a sudden I'm not paying my co-pays or you know, I don't have crazy deductibles, but it's also true that you know, my wages will go up uh, because my employer doesn't have to pay for health insurance. And it's also true that you know, I'll be receiving better, more high quality care. So I think that you know, a universal healthcare program, which has been shown to be cheaper than the status quo by none other than the Congressional Budget Office, seems like a, a no-brainer. You know, that said, I think there are other goals to tax policy other than financing broad-based social programs. I like to think about taxes on the rich as a form of Pagovian taxes. We talk about Pagovian taxes as you know, taxes on carbon pollution all the time. But I think taxing the rich is also taxing a negative externality. I think that you know, taxing the rich and, and curtailing the political power that their outsized wealth purchases them is a really important way to protect our, both our democracy and our economy and you know, really provide a more level playing field. I know we're, we're all economists here, but I think we want to dive a little into politics. Sure. <laughs> so can we imagine, you know, we have a lot of division in this country, we all know, but can we imagine a bipartisan a coalition around these economic rights? Because I kind of imagine that in some ways, despite with a political divide, that in many ways there is a lot in common here. And if we go back to earlier Friedman Hayek, maybe we maybe we can find something here where both sides can agree to something. Do you think that's utopian? Do you think we can come to some agreements as a country that maybe some of these things actually both sides do agree on, or is that just not going to happen? No, I think it's it's very feasible, as a matter of fact. And there's good polling to show this is the case. YouGov ran a poll basically asking Americans during the height of the the COVID crisis, do you support the federal government creating jobs for people who are unemployed to go do socially necessary work in their communities? 96% of Americans said yes, including 89% of Republicans. We're in favor of essentially a federal job guarantee. You know, they get 
the market failure of constant unemployment despite people wanting to work. I, you know, I, I'm sometimes embarrassed to admit this, but in 2018, I went on Tucker Carlson on Fox News and debated him on the idea of a job guarantee. And you know what? He largely agreed. His concern was, you know, what about immigrants? Okay, I, I hear that concern coming from the right. And, and, you know, will people just, you know, come to the United States for these job guaranteed jobs? I'm not, I don't share that concern, but I do, I do hear that from the right. But, you know, even conservatives understand that, you know, this country was built on a Puritan work ethic and that if people are willing and able to work, they should be able to get a job at a living wage. That's not a left or right issue. That's an American issue. And so, you know, things like a right to a job, I think, really transcend party lines in important ways. So after writing this book, and all, all books are kind of a labor of love, I mean, are you optimistic, pessimistic? Where do you stand today? And we're in uh, at the end of uh, beginning, end of April, beginning of May 2023. I mean, where where are you now today, Mark, in all this? Are you optimistic we're going to get some of these economic rights? I'm optimistic and terrified. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, I, I think we've never lived in a more exciting political moment and also a more dangerous political moment in our lifetimes. You know, we have multiple, you know, Democratic Socialists of America members sitting in Congress today fighting for economic rights. We have bills like a Green New Deal on the table. We have homes for all legislation on the table. We have strong minimum wage laws on the table. We have a job guarantee bill in Congress. And I think that, you know, these ideas are resonating with the American people. And that gives me a tremendous amount of hope. At the same time, you know, I am deeply concerned about the flirtation with fascism that we see in this country right now and what that could mean for our future. You know, the, the people are largely with these ideas, but we have a right wing party that is trying to capture politics and ensure that it is not accountable to the people through gerrymandering, through court capture and the like. And so, you know, I, I think that there's a very real concern that, you know, the right due to political gerrymandering is able to continue on its path to obstruction and on its path to political capture in ways that would, would really damn our nation and, and further kind of cause unnecessary immiseration on low-income people, on women, on minorities of, of various types. Okay, well, thank you for joining us, Mark. Uh, again, we're here with Mark Paul in New York City uh, talking about his book, The End of Freedom. Thank you, listeners, and have a great day. It's been a pleasure.